Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. All right, guys. So uh, today's Wednesday. We normally do water cooler episodes on Wednesday. Um, Peter's out and uh, Chris is having some Wi-Fi issues. So basically, we're just going to do a news episode today. We have not done an episode of the, of the news since last Thursday's big uh, emergency episode about Warner Brothers' big news about what they were uh, planning to do or are still planning to do with its 2021 release slate and uh, releasing all of that theatrically in, uh, I'm sorry, simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max. So HT, let's talk about the fallout from that because that is uh, a majority of what we're going to be discussing on today's episode. And you happen to write up a lot of stories about how Hollywood is reacting to that big news. So um, let's start first with uh, Legendary Pictures, which is a producing partner of Warner Brothers. How are they taking this news? Well, they're not happy then. And I can probably sum up the rest of the stories in one sentence that everyone is is mad at Warner Media. But Legendary is the first to potentially take this to court. They have um, an, uh, reportedly taken legal action against the company or about to take legal action, sending letters of litigation to Warner Media over the release of the, their Warner Brothers films, Godzilla vs. Kong and Dune to HBO Max day and date in both theaters and the streaming service. Legendary was notoriously unhappy with the decision, especially since they were reportedly only notified uh, of the announcement on the day of a couple hours before that game-changing announcement. So um, there aren't any uh, details yet on what kind of litigation this will be, but Legendary uh, provided 75% of the roughly $165 million net budget of Dune and put up a similar amount of funding for Godzilla vs. Kong. So uh, they, and reportedly they were approached by third-party alternatives like Netflix, who were willing to fork over $250 million for the streaming rights to Godzilla vs. Kong, but WarnerMedia blocked the deal. And um, in this case, they wouldn't be getting very much of that money back if uh, Warner Brothers was to drop it day and date on 
uh, HBO Max and theaters. Wow. So the idea there is Warner Media blocked the deal because they knew that they were, you know, going to include Godzilla versus Kong in this big plan. And so, I mean, it, it sort of seems like Legendary has the, um, I guess, the moral high ground here. Like they, they sort of have the right to be mad, right? Yeah, they certainly are. They're getting um, basically copped out of a lot of money that they could be earning at the box office. Granted, it is the pandemic and not a lot of theaters are open right now. And even with the vaccine headed on its way in 2021, uh, it's not uh, guesstimated that theaters will be full by any means. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, Legendary put a lot of money into this movie and box office returns are anticipated to help, you know, make back recoup those costs uh if they were to push it to a later date or even release it in theaters in 2021 but um yeah they they were completely sort of blindsided by this announcement and not included in any negotiations about this new release deal so yeah they're they have every right to be mad uh, well, speaking of negotiations, let's talk about our, our next story here, which is that uh, WB has managed to basically piss off every single entity and person in Hollywood with this uh, decision. And um, I mean, some big name people here are uh, are pretty mad about this as well. Not only, you know, like companies and, and business interests, but like uh, individual, you know, movie stars are, are not thrilled about this. So she tells about that. Yeah, especially these movie stars agents who um, are scrambling to get their talent proper pay. So this is this comes from uh, two reports from the New York Times and Hollywood Reporter, which give a glimpse at the behind-the-scenes sort of scramble for that took place after the uh, Warner Media announcement of the HBO Max Day and Date release. And it basically, basically paints a picture of the agents uh, fighting for the back-end pay for stars such as Denzel Washington, Margot Robbie, Will Smith, Keanu Reeves, Hugh Jackman, Angelina Jolie, and all these agents want to know why their clients are being treated in a lesser manner than, for example, Miss Gal Gadot, who, like Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins, um, because Wonder Woman 1984 was uh, given this HBO Max release before this whole 2021 slate, um, Warner Brothers approached them with this deal to uh, pay them the amount that uh, would be that they would be owed if the film were to hit theaters and make a billion dollars, for example, what the projected amount that it was meant to pay, uh, meant to earn. So Gal Gadot got her back end pay, which is the money that um, talent usually gets after uh, a film is a big box office hit and um, whatever like finances have gone to making back the budget and to uh, theaters and everything. And the rest goes to the talent and the director. So Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins got this money up front because of this unique uh, Wonder Woman 1984 HBO Max release. But because this uh, 2021 slate was done without that kind of uh, negotiations ahead of time, all of these people haven't gotten the Wonder Woman money that is that this um, deal is being called. And uh, the agents are mad that they're big stars and and, um, their talent isn't getting the pay that they were promised, essentially. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but essentially, the and HD, please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but I, I think the way that this works is like once a movie at the box office hits a certain threshold, if it crosses $100 million, for example, um, th- there are normally deals built in where people get 
bonuses at that point. And now that this language has been, you know, established in this, <laughs> whatever contracts that uh, actually, I guess that's going to be the thing, right? Like how many, how many uh, of these people are going to take uh, WB and, and HBO Max or whatever corporate AT&T, whatever corporate entity uh, to court because of the language in these contracts, because they don't include any sort of, um, you know, a potential outcome of what actually happened here. Like this idea that, that these movies are now going to be, you know, uh, primarily seen by people on HBO Max instead of in theaters means that there's almost no chance that uh, these movies are going to hit, you know, that much, um, you know, at least domestically, at least for the, <laughs> for the short term until like you were talking about a vaccine is like widely distributed and people are way more comfortable to return to theaters. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can understand why everybody's mad about this. I wonder if this, um, actually, do you think that this means that this deal came together very, very quickly? Or do you think that uh, Warner Media was just, um, let's see, how, how do I put this? Uh, they met with Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot before uh, Wonder Woman 1984 was announced to be the first project, the first major project, uh, you know, to, to be coming to HBO Max in this way. And then the the rest of the floodgates opened, right? So so I wonder if you if you think that this entire deal, this whole plan to release this 2021 slate on HBO Max came together in the interim, or do you think that they were just um, sort of, <laughs> that they did this on purpose so they wouldn't have to renegotiate or pay all of these people you know, up, up front. What do you think about that? I think it's a combination of both because from the reports, it seems that most of these agents for the talent were left in the dark unt uh, up until an hour and a half, two hours before the announcement was, announcement was made. And Warner Media deliberately kept this announcement for the HBO Max release um, like under tight lid so as to not you know, leak it to the press, but also to essentially keep, keep these negotiations from happening and for people to to um, ask for the money that they're technically owed. Like Warner Brothers is basically reneging on these contracts that um, these stars and um, talent signed up with for, to begin with. And um, it's, uh, it's not good. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, there's uh, some... Some of the uh, notes in this report also says that a couple stars, especially for Dune, uh, even took like some cuts from their upfront pay because of the anticipation for a higher box office return and to cut down so and to help with with high production costs. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like they because like they took they're probably like even more so uh, in the upset about this um, yeah, the circumstance yeah. because like they took lesser upfront and are now not going to be paid the the um the back end pay that they anticipated so yeah and it's got to be even more of a gut punch too because of the way that warner brothers like went out of its way to shift the release dates and stuff you know for for so long you know in the earlier stages of the of the pandemic before they finally sort of like i guess settled on this new plan so it seems like you know they were probably like okay we're in the clear for a while until the floodgates opened but mm -hmm. Uh, man, yeah, that's, um, I mean, I, I, I understand, you know, for everybody out there listening, like, uh, you know, we're not trying to, um, to empathize too much with like, you know, millionaires getting richer, but it, it's just on a purely business, uh, level. Like I understand that everyone is, is suffering right now and, and like normal Americans, uh, <laughs> you know, are, are probably hearing us talk about this or, or reading news stories about this and like scoffing that like, 
you know, people are getting quote unquote cheated out of the million dollar bonuses that they were going to get or whatever. Um, but just in terms of like a, uh, a seismic shift in the way that, that the industry works and like thing, how things are going to have to be negotiated moving forward. This seems like a pretty big deal. And I was listening to um, an episode of the script notes podcast that John August and Craig Mazin, the screenwriters host, and they uh, were talking about this a little bit. And Craig Mazin who wrote Chernobyl and the hangover movies and a bunch of other stuff um, was basically talking about how like, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. He said, I think he said something like, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he was like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, they wouldn't, uh, you know, if all these people are essentially just going to remain being screwed because in their current contract language, it says, you know, you only get these bonuses if these movies cross a certain threshold at the box office. And just because uh, this pandemic happened or whatever, that's not Warner Brothers fault that these movies aren't going to cross that budget. So I wonder, or cross that threshold. So I really wonder how all of this is going to end up shaking out and like whether or not this is going to have a um a negative like a like a stain on the reputation of warner brothers um yeah i mean this this really funny line from the new york times report uh says that some people have started to angrily refer to warner brothers as former brothers (laughs) Uh, because it's uh until now warner brothers was seen as a studio that prioritized uh the talent prioritize the creators and here it seems that they are not doing so and it, it has definitely um put uh, a stain like you said on um on the studio in its reputation with with creators and uh, filmmakers and with <laughs> actors um and i want to say to your point about like the million dollar paychecks bonus paychecks that we're talking about and that has become such such a source of contention um for wonder brothers I, I do want to add that um, I saw a great comparison between uh, this Warner Brothers uh, situation and Spotify and how they pay their artists. And um, basically, it's it's as if like, Spotify were to release, you know, an album uh, like straight to its streaming service and not pay the the artist the money mm-hmm. that they were owed if they were to like release it in a normal set, normal way. Yeah. And um, Spotify itself already has like a reputation for not paying its artists. Well, they pay like so many cents per, per stream. Mm-hmm. And so to, to we're, we're basically defending like the rights of people who did the work to get paid and criticizing a corporation, mega corporation for, you know, not doing their part in paying their employees. So I think I just want to, say that even though we are talking about million dollar paychecks i think that's an important point to make yeah i i, I think i'm so. glad that you said that plus one thing too is like like I, I know it's easy to scoff at celebrities you know whether they're actors or professional athletes getting paid millions of dollars when you could argue that their work isn't anywhere near as important as somebody like a doctor or somebody who you know changes or, or, or saves lives but i think it's important to note that the status of a lot of these people is what employs thousands if if not millions in a bunch of other jobs across the the spectrum you know without someone like gal, gal gadot in the role of wonder woman you're not going to sell a bunch of wonder woman t-shirts or action figures or any any amounts of merchandise and the people that make those things don't have jobs if no one's buying them and so there are so many things that are tied to the star power of these people and their their drawing power 
outside of the box office that the, the paycheck pays for all of this, for them to promote it, for them to be an image, to have these things be sold to people and to represent so much more than just the movie itself. So like, like again, I don't want to be the one who's like, who's like, man, these millionaires really need money, but like, this is what they get paid to do that. And, and that just happens to be how much they get paid to do it. And it does allow for a lot of other people to have jobs to get paid themselves. Excellent points, both of you. And I'm, I'm glad that you both mentioned that stuff because I, I would have just, you know, blithely moved on. But I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the trickle down impacts from stuff like this cannot be overstated. Like that there are so many different markets and, and um, yeah, just, you know, the, the effects are really uh, uh, astronomical there. So um, yes, it, it's not, it, it's, it's, I think I was being a little bit, uh, I don't know, glib in my statement there, but I'm just trying to, uh, you know, encompass the, the entire, uh, the, the enormity of, of the entire internet's opinions in one podcast, which is a, a fool's errand really. But um, <laughs> Brad, tell us about how, uh, or actually AHT, before we, we move on from you, how is um, AMC reacting to this? Because uh, AMC theaters, not the <laughs> TV network, although I'm sure they probably have some thoughts too, but how is AMC theaters reacting to this, uh, this news? Well, not well either. <laughs> They didn't mince words in their um, statement responding to the Warner Media, uh, Warner Brothers 2021 theatrical slate move, uh, saying in a lengthy statement, which I won't read in an entirety, that uh, Warner Media apparently intends to sacrifice a considerable considerable portion of the profitability of its movie of its movie studio division, and um, it will it intends to uh, go to. Uh, aggressively pursue economic terms to preserve their business and that they have already commenced an immediate and urgent dialogue with the leadership of Warner on this subject. So, um, and they were followed by Cinemark, which which is the number three exhibitor in the world, uh, also uh, blasting Warner Media's decision, uh, as well as Cineworld Group, which uh, is the owner of Regal Cinemas, which was actually a little more muted in its reaction, believing that Warner's will look to reach an agreement about the proper window and terms that will work for both sides. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, um, especially the way that AMC reacted to the Trolls World Tour situation earlier this year um, probably shows that just a, a more measured approach, it, it might be uh, the smart move in the in the long term here, considering uh, they ultimately ended up sort of coming around um, to, to that uh, mentality. Um, I know it's not an ideal situation for exhibitors right now, certainly. Uh, and I'm frankly surprised that we haven't seen like a big press release from the National Association of Theater Owners. They're normally like, you know, the second something bad in the exhibition community happens, they're normally like all over it with this big, you know, a big press release, like decrying this from on high. But um, Brad, tell us how like smaller movie theater chains or, or independent theaters uh, are, are reacting to this. No, sir, they don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, uh, it feels repetitive, like we're, you know, beating a, a dead horse. But, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't happy about this. And that includes uh, the Independent Cinema Alliance. So um, much like the National Association of Theater Owners um, speaks for, you know, big uh, major theater chains and whatnot. There's also um, the Independent Cinema Alliance, which uh, is a collection uh, of volunteer people who run independently owned movie theaters across the country. Um, and they expressed their disappointment in the situation as well. Um, they called it a questionable decision. And, you know, they understand that, you know, these are unprecedented times, but they're also just, uh, you know, worried about how 
this lack of new material that's of it, um, would normally be available exclusively in theaters will hurt the industry's hopeful comeback uh, once the vaccine for the coronavirus is out there and people are ready to go back to movie theaters again. Um, and so, you know, like AMC, they too hope to be able to, you know, strike uh, good deals with uh, studios so that they, you know, get the kind of um, revenue that they are used to getting when they have movies in theaters. And, you know, they want to collaborate with all the key players in Hollywood to make sure that happens. But it's definitely something that, that they are worried about. And, um, you know, I mean, they, they really should be. It's The thing about this is, you know, we, uh, this is something that was probably inevitable because it's theaters and studios have been arguing about this for a while. And the coronavirus pandemic seems to have accelerated it. But when you have AMC striking deal deals with a studio like Universal to shorten theatrical windows, this was something that was going to happen across the board uh, sooner than later anyway, you know. So now it just comes down to how the negotiations shake out and how this is going to work, you know. And it's um, like we talked about when the news broke is this will be something akin to, you know, figuring out new, the new situation of when uh, writers and directors weren't getting um, paid for any of the streaming views that, mm-hmm. that you know, uh, networks were getting for putting shows online. So it's just it's the next evolution of, you know, the industry. And we just have to hope that it doesn't hurt movie theaters, especially these independent ones uh, too much, because those are the ones that are really going to hurt, uh, you know, in indie movies um, and these prestige dramas and uh, block um, movies that aren't blockbusters that are already difficult to see because they normally don't get a wide release. Yeah, I wonder if you guys think that the pushback here, the immense pushback, I mean, we've talked about what, one, two, three, four different articles that we've written in, in the past few days about, uh, you know, and, and there was one even about Christopher Nolan reacting to it. So there's there's more on SlashFilm.com that we have not talked that we're not talking about today. Um, there's been a ton of pushback on this. I wonder if you guys think that that negative reaction is going to, um, I don't know, have any sort of, is it going to fall on deaf ears? Or do you think that this actually could amount to, um, HBO Max, this whole deal actually only working for 2021 as the press release stated. I mean, we all speculated and, and sort of predicted like, oh, this is going to be more of the new normal going forward, you know, once, you know, into 2022 and beyond. But do you guys think that this negative reaction could actually mean that this is just a, a one year thing? Either one of you. It's hard to tell, but, uh, I think that if even if Warner Brothers were to uh, just consider bring, taking this beyond 2021, they would get a lot of pushback, not only in the press, as all of these people are doing and taking it to the media, but in the courts, because we haven't seen this actual litigation yet. And I'm sure this it would play out over many months if um, any of these studios or uh, agents were to go to court over these contract deals, and it would just cost Warner Media a lot more money than they would probably be willing to spend on this um, this hybrid model that is already a gamble at that. So, uh, HT, you know, now that we've talked about this this huge decision and its big fallout, what what are the actual numbers looking like on HBO Max right now? As as uh, AT and T and Warner Brothers are sort of like uh, you know sitting in the in the wake of this big announcement. Yeah, the widely accepted assumption is that this Warner Brothers HBO Max release plan was put forward by Warner Media to give a boost to HBO Max after after the botched release 
uh, of the streaming service. And uh, it's kind of worked. Um, AT&T came to the defense of the release plan, citing the 4 million new HBO, HBO Max subscribers that the streamer has gained since September, which brings the service to nearly 12.6 million activated users, uh, much more than the around 8 million activated users uh, that was reported in a couple months ago. And um, this is, uh, they're, they seem pretty optimistic about these new numbers. And um, it's nothing to sneeze at. It's a decent number. But uh, in comparison to Disney Plus, which recently surpassed 73.7 million subscribers a year after it launched, uh, it's still kind of, you know, on the low end. Um, yeah, and, um, geez. <laughs> when you put it right, you know, right next to each other like that, it's a pretty stark difference. Yeah. And uh, yeah, 4 million new subscribers is a decent gain, but I don't know if it's enough to justify a um, so much potential litigation happening and box office losses that Warner Brothers will inevitably suffer through. Man, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, they're, they're clearly going all in on HBO Max, and I wonder if these numbers are are just uh, low right now because these are only people who, you know, read entertainment news and, and um, absorb entertainment news uh, in the earliest, you know, stages uh, as who are signing up right now or like once, uh, let's say, Wonder Woman uh, 1984 actually comes on the service and people are like, oh, that movie's out now. How do I watch it? Oh, it means I have to sign up for HBO Max. I'm going to do that right now. I wonder if these numbers are going to see, you know, a, a drastic increase as these films, starting with Wonder Woman 1984, start to actually roll out over the next year. I wonder we'll have to keep it, keep an eye on that because it seems like that's going to be where the real, um, you know, the, the real uh, consequences of this decision play out. Like, is this going to be worth it for for AT and T, or is this going to be like? a colossal blunder that that completely upended Hollywood for, you know, quote unquote, no good reason. Um, we'll have to see. But I guess speaking of Wonder Woman 1984, Brad, tell us about the early buzz uh, from that movie. What are people thinking about it? People like it. <laughs> Great. All right, moving on. Uh, no, no, it's uh, the, the, the buzz has been um, overwhelmingly positive for the most part. Granted, this is only uh, the first wave of press reaction. So there wasn't um, you know, a, a large circle of critics who had seen it. I, I would say it was probably somewhere um, around a, a dozen, maybe a little bit more, um, that were a part of the first wave of social media reactions, uh, including HT. HT, what did you think of Wonder Woman 1984? Oh, I really enjoyed it. And um, it's, it's, it re- it's a movie that really doubles down on all of the cheese, the compassion, and the heart that made the first one a success. And the, it is a bit on the lengthy side. It's like two and a half hours long. But um, yeah, it's long. But I, I just I just had such a fun time watching it. It's, it felt such a breeze to watch, especially for um, most of the two hours. I think the first half, the first like act of it is a little bit clunky. Um, but it's just such a, a wonderful sort of much needed balm in this year. And one that really speaks to... <laughs> Um, that kind of aspirational quality that I think that Wonder Woman represents and um, has bears some similarities to another sort of feel good uh, major release that took that uh, was came out this year, which was Bill and Ted face the music. And <laughs> I don't want to get go too much into the similarities for fear of spoilers. But um, if you liked that feel good niceness of Bill and Ted, I think that Wonder Woman 1984 will definitely appeal. 
Yeah, uh, lo- Brad, I assume other people were feeling similarly. Yeah, there's been some, uh, a lot of the reactions have talked about just how uplifting and joyful the sequel is, in addition to having, you know, the kind of superhero spectacle you want. Um, also having, you know, uh, essentially what feels like a very classic Hollywood romance between Chris Pine and Gal, Gal Gadot, you know, which is uh, such a huge deal for her character because it brings back Steve Trevor from uh, the dead. Uh, which is something that a lot of people weren't expecting. And then, uh, you know, you have Kristen Wiig and uh, Pedro Pascal also being praised for their performances as the villains Cheetah and Maxwell Lord. Um, in particular, a lot of people are saying that Pascal is definitely hamming it up as Maxwell Lord, but that's kind of uh, the point. He's even talked about it himself, saying that uh, Gal Gadot brought the action and he brought the what he called schmacting. Uh, so, so I'm sure, I'm sure he was having a lot of fun with this role and uh, yeah, it's, um, there was really only like a, a, a little like touch of dis- dissension among, uh, this first wave of critics where they, uh, someone said they didn't like it quite as much as the first one. Um, but otherwise it's uh, a lot of, you know, great things to say about it. And so it sounds like on Christmas we'll, we'll all have a, a nice gift to, to unwrap. Okay, so HT, um, very important question for you, but in the interest of preserving spoilers for people, I would like you to answer in a in one of three ways. Yes, meh, or no. Here's the question. Did the Chris Pine subplot and like all of the logistics surrounding how he comes back and what happens to him, did that satisfy you? Yes. Maybe okay. cry though. <laughs> all right, all right. So that's good to know. I I uh don't want to know anything about this movie going in. I'm very much looking forward to it. So yeah, December 25th uh, in some theaters, if you feel like going out and seeing it in the theater and then on HBO Max, which is definitely how I will be watching it. Uh, Okay, Uh, let's move on to some Marvel news. Uh, A new report says that Alfred Molina is coming back to the Spider-Man universe. He is going to be playing Dr. Octopus, aka Doc Ock, once again. Um, this is this news had the internet or, or Twitter at least a buzz yesterday, and uh, I mean, you know, we knew that the cast of Spider-Man Three, which is not the real name of this movie, it's the follow-up to Spider-Man Far From Home. We knew this was going to be. A film that introduced the concept or, or I guess built on the, the concept of the multiverse in live action because Jamie Foxx's Electro from The Amazing Spider-Man 2 is going to be back. We also knew that Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange was going to be involved. So, you know, the, the pieces were in place there for um, a, a lot of different uh, versions and, and iterations of classic Spider-Man characters to make their way into this movie. And I suspect this is probably only the beginning. Like uh, this, this news happened about Alfred Molina coming back. And then there was also some news uh, immediately afterwards that, that suggested that some other Peter Parker actors, uh, Toby Maguire and Andrew Garfield, and maybe Kirsten Dunst uh, and potentially even Emma Stone might be coming back as well. So you can read all the specifics there in, in the show notes and the links um, that will, that will provide. Um, but I want to open the floor and see what you guys think about this. What do you think specifically about um, Alfred Molina as Doc Ock coming back? Uh, Brad, let's start with you. Uh, Spider-Man 2 is one of my favorite superhero movies of all time. Um, and a big part of that is because of how great Alfred Molina is as Doc Ock in that movie. So I could not uh, be be more excited about this, um, especially because it just seems to be further leaning into the fact that we're going to be dealing with uh, the multiverse and you know, the, the likelihood of seeing several Spider-Men sharing the screen together uh, if, you know, these uh, deals happen to work out, which it's, it's, it seems like they will. You know, this is one of those things where um, Marvel's definitely going to try and keep these secrets, much in the same way that they did 
when it was uh, reported that Spider-Man was going to be in Captain America Civil War. Uh, even mm-hmm. even when I did the set visit for Captain America Civil War and the news had been reported, no one would give in to the idea that that Spider-Man was in this movie. They would they tap danced around it saying, oh, we don't know if that's going to happen. You know, that's been discussed, but we're not really sure. And it's like, it's 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 sure. Um, and so we, we don't know for sure for, for this just because, we, you know, we're not privy to, to a lot of these behind the scenes dealings, especially, you know, with um, the coronavirus pandemic, keeping things a little bit more under wraps without so much on location shooting. But this just, uh, you know, it, it, it makes sense considering what we've heard about Dr. Strange's involvement and uh, things that are happening with other uh, Marvel properties. And it just it's, it's the the next big thing that they can do with with Spider-Man. Um, to really make it an, an event movie, you know, especially since this is likely going to be the last movie where Tom Holland is officially part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, maybe, because when Marvel and Sony renewed their their deal to share Spider-Man so that he could be part of the MCU, it was for one more Spider-Man movie and an appearance in another uh, unknown Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, um, which some people have assumed is probably Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but could be something else. So this, you know, this could be a big send off to send him into, um, you know, a, a universe that isn't the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So that way Sony can build their Spider-Man um, centric universe, which I, f- I forget what the weird convoluted name is for it. It's like Sony's I don't think yes. a name yet. Is there? It, yeah, yeah, there is. They... There is. And it's very clunky. It's like Sony's universe of like Spider-Man characters or, or some, <laughs> some, something. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's something very, very clunky. But they, you know, you know... they should call it the dark universe. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they've, they've got Morbius coming and there's been talks about a bunch of other uh, villains and side characters getting spinoffs. And I'm sure that they want to have Tom Holland have basically a clean slate over there um and this seems like the smartest way to do it while also giving fans of the marvel studios movies something from the comics that they've wanted to see in live action for a long time so it's it's super exciting and i i really hope that it works out brad something that you just said made me wonder and i know we've speculated about miles morales that character maybe coming into the mcu at some point but the way that you just described that the idea of like potentially this Spider-Man 3 movie ending with uh, Tom Holland's character getting sucked into a portal over to Sony movies. That seems like the perfect opportunity to introduce a live action Miles Morales and have him, you know, immediately pick up where uh, Tom Holland left off, doesn't it? Uh, do you think that that's a possibility here? Or do you think they'll hold off on on introducing Miles in the MCU for a while? You know, I don't know. It's it's definitely a, a possibility, and it would be a way to do it without having to recount the origin again, especially since they've, they've already started to tell Miles Morales' story from the beginning with Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So you probably don't need to retread that territory so soon after that movie came out. Um, and you, we already know kind of like what the legacy of Spider-Man is, even if Miles Morales is a completely different character from Peter Parker. So if there was a way for Peter Parker to, you know, somehow enter Miles Morales' universe and Miles Morales to swap for whatever reason, it, it would be a good way to bring in Miles Morales into the MCU easily, much in the same way that Captain America Civil War introduced us to Black Panther uh, without giving him, you know, a, a, a regular origin story, as it were. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's something that would be very cool. I just, um, I just wonder if it's something that they're able to pull off, especially because no matter what, Sony still has the rights to Spider-Man. So I don't know if Marvel would easily be able to pull Miles Morales into the MCU as a trade for Peter Parker if, if, mm-hmm. if Sony still wants to use Miles Morales. Gotcha. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. Uh, they, they have, I think they have access to something like. 
600 uh, Spider-Man characters or something like that over there. So yeah, I, I wonder if Miles is technically uh, a part of that roster. I'm, I'm sure he is. Um, so uh, HT, before we end today, I want to present this question to you. Do you think that the introduction of Alfred Molina and all of these you know, other um, Spider-Man universe characters, uh, do you think it's going to overshadow Tom Holland as Spider-Man. Like the, you know, the kid has never gotten a uh, a pure sort of low-key Spider-Man movie. He's always been, I, I saw somebody on Twitter point this out, like, you know, uh, Tony Stark has always been there or he's been in an Avengers movie or, um, you know, Mysterio rolled in and there's just, you know, th- there's always something that that is, it seems like uh, Marvel and Sony just can't let um, Tom Holland lead a Spider-Man movie by himself. It's almost like they don't have enough, faith in him as or, or that this version of the character will be able to lead a story like this do you think that he's going to be overshadowed in this movie if they continue to add you know tons of other characters from spider-man spider-man's backstories all over the place wow ben you read my mind oh, really? <laughs> you just said i had noted in my spider-man piece about the peter parker's coming back because I'm a big sucker for the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Uh, Spider-Man 2 is also one of my favorite superhero movies of all time. I love Alfred Molina's Duck Ock. I think his tragic Shakespearean take on the character is so, so good. And um, I even have an affection for Tobey Maguire's uh, weird, nerdy (laughs) Peter Parker. And I just think that I just feel bad for Tom Holland because he's always been in the shadow of some some other character or being mentored by some other character. First, it was Tony Stark in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming for, and, and also in his introduction in uh, Captain America Civil War. Mm-hmm. And then in um, Far From Home, it was Mysterio. And uh, it feels like he has always been almost a supporting player in his own franchise and a that at best and a plot device at worst because first he was used to in the civil war to like introduce i don't know spider-man and more more twists to that story and now he is essentially being used to introduce the multiverse in a way and um tom holland you know really charismatic really talented little actor um i can't say for like i can't um really you know associate not associate i can't really connect with all my other fellow bloggers of the same age as me who are like thirsting over this young boy <laughs> i guess it's fine but you know he's a no he's like 20 something i guess so. he's, a he's a baby <laughs> anyways i i do feel kind of bad for him because i feel like he's such leading man material and he's often just been kind of shunted to the side in favor of doing all this world building and um legacy building and stuff and that was one of my f- least favorite parts about uh, far from home actually i really disliked how it was this globe trotting thing it didn't feel very much like spider-man until the end credits when you see him back in new york and i was like wow i miss this part of spider-man mm-hmm. so yeah it's i'm i'm excited for like these characters because i you know i'm nostalgic nostalgia is a disease whatever but um <laughs> i i i'm excited to see them again but at the same time yeah i feel i feel bad for tom holland and you know he he has a passion for this character despite him not really being able to show it and take it on his own in these films <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess the hope for me would be that um, all of these uh, cameos that they're talking about are only going to be featured maybe in one scene where he somehow like, you know, peers in through another dimension or something and like sees a bunch of different um, 
versions of, of past spider characters and uh, maybe has like some brief interactions with them. And it's not like a full blown back to the future part two or Avengers Endgame scenario where like he enters their movie or like pulls them out of an action scene that they were in the middle of and, and incorporates them into their world. And it's like a whole thing. I would much rather these be like just a small thing. So Tom Holland can kind of have some of his movie to himself, but um, yeah, I think you make a lot of good points there. So we'll have to see how this how this plays out. But yeah, I'm guessing this is just the beginning in terms of the the cameo stuff that's going to be uh, rumored or, or announced over the coming months. So um, we will be covering all of that at SlashFilm.com. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at that very website and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting... Well, it's not not anymore. I, I, we really should change this, uh, this text here. It's like three times a week now. Bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Please also rate and review the uh, podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so, so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys, I think, tomorrow maybe for a water cooler. If not, then, then definitely on Friday for another Mandalorian episode.